Bring it in. Read option back after the holidays. I hope everybody out there listening had a wonderful uh, Christmas. If you celebrate, had a wonderful uh, holiday season. Got to go home myself uh, and and see the family and hang out. And uh, a lot of really great stuff, honestly. Um, And I know this year has been a little harder. I know some people had some stuff with COVID outbreaks and... um, if that was you, I, uh, I hope you were able to make the most of it. I hope everyone was able to be safe and um, still able to make the most of their holiday uh, solo pod today. Vito, our man, uh, is battling something. Not sure yet if it's COVID or not, but uh, our man's been sick as a dog and uh, we're sending our, our best thoughts and uh, well wishes to our man Vito and Scotty. Uh, is out on the West Coast right now, uh, was able to go home uh, to, to try to see some family. I think he had some COVID stuff as well. But um, again, just want to hope everyone is safe. Um, go get your boosters and all that. And, uh, and hopefully 2022, and by this time next year, we're past the shit. <laughs> we're past uh, talking about this. We're past being annoyed by it. We're past having to miss holidays and missing family members because of uh, freaking COVID. So uh, do your part, keep rolling. And um, in the meantime, though, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to do big pictures talk in the NFL. We're going to do uh, an open here on college bowl game opt-outs and uh, the transactional nature of college football um, that, somehow hasn't seemed that clear to a lot of people. And uh, I think it's worth kind of diving into, um, you know, we're, we're getting to it here. We're, we're getting to the, uh, the ending of football season. But uh, if you're into spring football, there's like three different spring leagues that uh, are going to be coming out. Uh, I will not be participating. Instead, I'll be getting ready for the masters and golf season as well as our, our NBA stuff, because that is uh that is where we're heading. We got March Madness to look forward to. So much going on in the sports world, uh, and, and as long as you know COVID and Omicron don't don't fuck it up anymore. But the open today is on what I alluded to there: college bowl games, right? As someone who came into college football later in life as a fan, bowl games have never held a whole lot of significance to me. You know, I remember as a kid, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. I remember as a kid, right, you would sit down and you would watch, you know, ESPN or whatever, and the uh, the bowl commercial would, would pop up, right? It, it would be like the 12 days of bowl games or whatever they'll call it, and it would be the 12 days of music, and it would be all the different bowl games, and ESPN would promote the shit out of it. And during that stretch, we had one national championship game. We had one bowl game that was for the national championship, so only – you know, out of the 120 teams at the time in college football and FBS, you know, only two made it to the national championship. Only two had a chance to make it to the national championship. And then when we hit the college football playoff era in 2013-2014, that completely changed for whatever reason. Bowl games started to become less significant. And then Christian McCaffrey, who I believe is the first you know, top five projected pick 
opted out of, I believe it was the Rose Bowl when he was at Stanford. Now, Chris McCaffrey, I think, made the right decision for himself. Ended up being, I think, the number three overall pick. Or, or not number three, he was top ten pick. But he, he's gone on to be one of the best players in the NFL, especially when he's healthy, um, which health has become a major concern. Now, you, you look at him in college, he was banged up all the time. In the NFL, he's been banged up all the time. Well, maybe in hindsight, you know, he kind of made the right decision. But what's bothered me about this, this conversation about bowl opt-outs is there's, it's littered with hypocrisy from those who cover the sport. Now, I'm in studio. I'm, I'm talking to these guys on a regular basis, right? Former players, guys who have this deep emotional connection to bowl games, to college football as a whole, right? Which is why when the NIL stuff came up and the transfer portal came up, so many of these quote-unquote, free market capitalists in their personal life had all sorts of issues with where we were going in college football, right? Because in their day, you know, they, they had to stick through and they never had the choice to leave. Or if they did, they were going to have to sit out another year. And you never skipped the bowl game. And, man, we used to go and, and tear it up in, in Tucson when we went to the Sun Bowl, you know. Uh, all of these weird memories that I understand to them are very meaningful and important, but the projection of their own experience onto the modern day athlete while simultaneously kind of ignoring where we're going in sports as a whole is frustrating because these are people who are self-proclaimed free market capitalists. And I don't mean to bring any sort of, I don't mean this in a political sense, but they're, you know, they're people that basically say, you know, Hey, let the market dictate, right? If, if you're worth this much and someone wants to pay you this much and that's how much you're going to get. But when it comes to college football, their, their tones change. And it's always frustrated me when I'm like, why, why, how can you be one or the other, right? Free market capitalism is not a theory in which you can be halfway in. You know, you can't have it for some things and not for other. Either you believe in it or you don't. And there's no in between, really. And so I talk to these guys, these former players, and they have these wonderful memories, but they completely ignore their own bias. I saw Danny Cannell tweeting out this morning about this, all these players opting out. This is a serious problem. We need to fix it. This whole, the sky is falling mentality in college football. And I also know Danny personally, and I know that Danny doesn't believe in that kind of mentality in any other aspect of his life. But this, this whole issue that they have is not specific to college football. They phrase it in college football, but it's really the nature of how sports have progressed in our country, right? When we idolize athletes, just like we do with musicians and actors and celebrities in our culture, the way that we do, it trickles down to the youth. It trickles down to being the kid who wants to be famous and make a ton of money and be the star quarterback at Ohio State and then go on to the NFL and win a bunch of Super Bowls, right? As a kid, you grow up and you it's, it's the certain lack of loving the game, which honestly, I understand that side of it. I understand frustration from looking at where – we were 50 years ago where people legitimately, if you're a football player, you're making good money, but you weren't one of the richest 1% of, of people in the country. And you played football because you loved it. You played basketball because you loved it. And it was that intense love and passion that led 
to a, a college career, getting your college paid for the scholarship, and in some cases, being able to go play professionally. Sports aren't that way anymore. Sports have evolved to celebrity status. And if you want to be mad about NIL and you want to be mad about the transfer portal and these kids wanting to leave because they're not going to get a chance to start and they're not going over adversity and it would be better for them as men and play this moral compass card, then you have to have that same mentality across the board. All right. If you want free market capitalism, if you want open season, right, where if you're worth this much in an open market, you can get this and you're not getting paid for the school, and there's this whole argument that, well, amateur athletics can still teach people a lot, no question. No question that's the case. But guess what? That's not where we are anymore with sports. And it is now infecting college. And people have become wise to, all right, over the last 20 years, as TV contracts have skyrocketed, and now all of a sudden these college football programs are getting hundreds, you know, making hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of, of 10 to 15 years. Their mindset is going to change because that money's not allowed to be funneled to the players. You know, this isn't like pro sports where, hey, the NFL got a new TV deal and then you negotiate in this the collective bargaining agreement and now the cap goes up and players can make more money. We've seen it in the NBA drastically over the last 15 years. Look at how much the max was for players in 2005 compared to what it was in 2020. And that's all you need to know. Players are signing $220 million contracts for five years. Getting paid 30 plus million a year if you're one of the true elite players. And even the bottom end of the spectrum has jumped up considerably we don't have that in college football because the players aren't making any money so as the tv money has gone increasingly up that money has to go somewhere and where is it trickled out to it goes into the facilities you have around your 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 program it goes into Coaches having private jets, so they're allowed to recruit and be in Oklahoma one day and Oklahoma and, and California the next day and then Florida the day after that to go hit all the different recruits that they're trying to go and meet. And the biggest indictment of all this, and the biggest example, rather, is coaches' salary. What is Mel Tucker making? What was that contract again? Oh, yeah, $95 million for a seven-year contract? or 10-year contract, whatever. He's making almost $10 million a year. Mel Tucker, James Franklin, making over $75 million you know, in total over the next 10 years. That money has to go somewhere. It can't go to the players. But we still want to hold on to this moral and virtue, you know, this, this morality side of this whole thing. Where we're saying, oh, but amateur athletics still matter. It's not amateur athletics anymore. These guys have been getting paid for a long time. And one of my favorite hosts I get to work with, one of the nicest people I know, Ben Hartsock, keeps using this phrase, transactional. He hates that college football has become transactional. Well, college as a whole has become transactional. Okay, and, and, and if you want to be mad about that, as someone who's in exceeding amounts of student loan debt, I get it. I hate it as much as anybody. I hate 
the fact that banks and schools are just one-upping each other, being like, okay, well, we want to build this new student success center, so we're going to raise our tuition up another $5,000 this year. And doing that year after year after year, as more and more students are coming in, right, it, it's, it's, a, it's a similar example of the housing crisis in 2008. Signing off loans for people to get houses without checking whether or not they can actually pay them back. The only difference is, is with student loans, it's more of the long, it's the long con, right? Where, where 10 years from now, how much are these people still in debt and how it's going to trickle down across everything else. And college football is a great example of that. College football is in a place now where players aren't, you know, can finally start getting paid off their name, image, and likeness, but not from the schools themselves. So the schools are still going to be making the same amount of money off of their TV contracts and, and growing and on the same trajectory that they've been on. But players can't be compensated. So coaches' contracts keep getting, getting higher and higher. Hugh Freeze is making $4.5 million a year at Liberty. At Liberty. A Conference USA school now. As they're joining a conference finally, as they, they were an independent for the last few years. Hugh Freeze is getting $4.5 million a year at Liberty. But we can't pay, you know, we can't pay the players, amateur athletics. And so how does all this relate back to the bowls, right, and the opt-outs? My biggest question about whether or not a player wants to go out, why people get upset about this, is why the hell do you care? Why do you care at all? These players are working their asses off day in and day out. This is where we're at. We're going to get mad at these kids because they want to take the chance on themselves to go make real money. They don't owe anything to the university. Hell, Bobby Carpenter, Ben Hartsock are joking on, on the 23rd last week when I'm working with them about how Ohio State used to beat the crap out of them, used to use them and treat them like meat. And yet they have been distorted in their minds to believe that this is a good thing across the board. What, what are we talking about? The hypocrisy of former players to look at college football in the modern day and say that there's all these problems with it. Oh, this, we, we can't do this. There's all these, you know, the, the, the uh, amateur education still means something. Amateur sports still mean something. Your problem is with the bigger picture. Now, do I think it's ridiculous that in states down south where high school football is a massive deal that you have middle school kids doing like signing days at their schools? Yes, I think that's absurd. But that's where we're going. So again, my question is this, why do you care? Bowl games don't matter as much as they used to. As somebody who got into football primarily during the college football playoff era, I don't have any sort of resentment towards kids not playing. And I think it's great that guys in the, in the early 2000s who played college football had such wonderful experiences at their bowl games. I think that's awesome. But why are you projecting what you went through onto an entirely different generation? Because if all of those same kids, all those senior athletes, these former athletes I work with, 
were going through college now, they'd be doing the same thing. And by the way, this isn't every single co- – like Matt Corral's arguably the most talented quarterback prospect we have in the class this year. He's playing in his bowl game because it matters to him to do that. Kudos for him. I think that's awesome. Ole Miss and Baylor is arguably the bowl game that's not a college football playoff game that I'm most excited about. And Matt Corral playing in that game is meaningful. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic thing for him and for Ole Miss and for college football to some degree. But if a kid says, hey, you know what? Chris Olave today comes out and says, hey, you know what? I'm out. Garrett Wilson, his teammate, same day, both of them. Probably both going to be first round draft picks in the NFL, you know, at wide receiver from the same team go, hey, we've had a great three years here. We're moving on to the next thing. This is the direction it's going. You can sit around and complain about it and dog on these kids and say there's a big problem with the system. Or you can just be realistic and say, hey, this is where we're at. This is what college football is. Okay, bowl games are fun. It's great for the small schools, the group of five schools who get a chance to go out and play in these big bowl games to have one last run to go win something because it means something to them, and they should. But if the top-level guys want to go off, that's their decision. That is their decision. Again, these free market capitalists have all these beliefs and every other aspect of their life. But as soon as it pertains to something that they went through personally, that they have a bias towards, well, now it's the biggest problem in the world. You can't have it both ways. If a kid wants to transfer, let him transfer. If you think that it it may be bad for him down the road, go ahead. He's going to have to learn from it. It's his decision. I fucked up in college. I made mistakes in college. And I guarantee you that every single person listening to this made mistakes in college too. But you learned from it. It's a part of growth. It's a part of becoming a person. That's the whole point of college anyway. And if they end up losing a spot at a power five school and they want to transfer down to a group of five schools so they can play and ends up not being as good of experience, that sucks. I have empathy for them. But you lay in the bed that you make. And the kids are going to have to learn from that. But it's so much better that they have the option too, especially when they're not being compensated at all. No question that more transfers will not work out than will work out. Last year, 17% of college football rosters were in the transfer port at the, at the FBS level. 17% in 2020. That number has a crossed the 20% threshold, which means one out of every five college football players is in the transfer portal. The only thing I can say here, whether it's good or not good, is that it's far too early to tell. But again, it's wrong to not let them have that option. It's wrong to not let them go make those mistakes if that's what they're going to make. And there will be players like Jacob Hester, who was the last guy in his recruiting class in 2006 coming out of, you know, Shreveport, Louisiana. He was a two-star running back, fullback. And Nick Saban saw something in him when Nick Saban was coaching at LSU. And he gave him a spot. He was the last player. In fact, he 
was what they called a class killer, where LSU was going to have the number one recruiting class in the country. And then they signed the two-star with their last spot in Jacob Hester, and it dropped them down to number two. But that LSU team still went on, went on to win a national championship. Jacob Hester went on to play six years in the NFL and had a great career and is now set up for the rest of his life. I get that there are going to be examples of like, like that that don't happen now because by his own admission, if he was being recruited right now, that spot that he got in that recruiting class would be held for transfers. But that's also another opportunity from a kid who plays at Central Michigan, who's balled out, who wants to go take a shot at playing at LSU or Alabama. There is going to be a leveling of the water, right? Water always finds its level. There's going to be a leveling here. 17% now up to 20% of kids in the transfer portal. That number's not going to be at 20% forever. There's going to be enough evidence over time that's going to tell us that, hey, you know what? You might be better off staying. But it's wrong to say that this is killing college football. It's wrong to say NIL is bad for college football, and it's wrong to say that players opting out is a bad thing. You know what's a bad thing for? You, sitting at home, wanting to watch more competitive bowl games. That's what it's bad for. It's so self-serving to sit there and say, this is, a, this is an epidemic in college football. This is killing college football. Bullshit it is. It's killing your enjoyment of it. Because all those same people that are saying this is killing college football are doing it for that reason, because the product itself is worse. But then those are the same people who will sit up there and say, well, we got to think about the kids. This is bad for the kids. Again, you can't have it both ways. You can't play both sides of it. Regardless of transfers or not, people are still going to sit down and watch their team every single week. If your team's in a bowl game, you're probably going to sit down and watch it, even if your best players all leave for the draft because you want to see the next group because it's, it's a test for next year. And if, once we expand the college football playoff and more of these ex, you know, ex, extra bowl games that we have now that are quote-unquote meaningless, we'll have meaning to them. But sitting down and saying, man, this is just – this is the worst thing. We, ha we have to solve this. Bullshit. Bullshit. If a kid wants to transfer, let him transfer. If a kid wants to make his own mistakes, let him make his own mistakes. It's wrong to say that you can't do that. It's against the whole concept of free market. If a kid wants to go do that, if a kid thinks he can make more money somewhere else, if a kid wants to protect his interests, he can go and do that and go into the draft. And I've heard so many of those same people use the draft as an argument. They're like, well, draft is the least free market thing of all time. You know, you, you don't get to go and there's no bidding war to see who wants to go after Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, that'd be super entertaining. Let's, let's, let's do an auction bid. I'm, I don't care. Whoever wants to pay the much money can pay the most money. But those same people are then contradicting themselves immediately. Where they're saying that, the NFL draft is wrong because it's not the free market and you're signing up and you don't get any choice you can go. Oh, but actually you can't make money off your name, image, and likeness. That's bad for college football, so we have to protect that. Oh, sorry, actually you can't transfer uh, one time for, for free because that's going to be bad for college football. 
it's bad for you, the viewer, or it's bad for you as the former player who's sitting there resenting, you know, what you, something that means something to you has turned into. It's, it's not a, Hey, what, like, where can we mentally check in here and, and let me make sure all my logic's equal across the board. No, there's bias riddled across it, whether you're a fan or a former player. And so again, ask yourself the question, not, this is not a, like just a question that I'm throwing out there that I don't expect an answer to legitimately ask yourself, why do you care? Do you care because your Saturdays are being affected by it? Or do you genuinely think it's a bad thing for the players? And if you genuinely think it's bad for the players, I'll ask yourselves again, why do you care? Players are allowed to make their own decisions. We let kids sign up at 17 years old to put on six figures of student loan debt. And that's, well, they made their decision. But now you're worried about, oh, well, they're only 19 years old. They don't know what's best for them. You can't have it both ways. So let the kids transfer. Let them opt out. And if they get hurt in the bowl game and they decide to play, that sucks. But there's nothing we can do to fix it. And if they end up missing out on amazing things that you got to do I'm, as a former player, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that's the case. I'm sorry that, that you, that they're not going to be able to experience what you did, but guess what? That's their decision. There's no external pressure. Sometimes there's agents involved, but if these kids get a chance to live out their dream and go try to be drafted, let them go. If they enter the draft and they don't get drafted, let them come back. If you really care about it, then that's what you would do. But that's not the system we have in place. Because college football is spiteful of this. Because it's hurting the product. Or it's hurting something that you hold intrinsically valuable and you're projecting your own shit onto other people. If kids want to make the decision, if kids are allowed to sign up for life-crushing debt who are non-athletes, then let kids make the decision to transfer when they have a scholarship and their college is being paid for. Let them do it. Why do we care? Why do you care? Legitimately ask yourself that. And if it's because of you, if it's a self-serving thing, then get over yourself. I love college football. I love it in this current era. And I'm excited for the era when we expand the playoff and more of these bowl games become legitimately meaningful. But in the meantime, until we get to the expansion, let the kids make their mistakes. The pendulum's going to swing back. The product will be fine. People will still, people said all year, man, and in and, and years past leading up to the NIL stuff, well, when you, once these kids start making money, I'm not going to watch anymore. Bullshit. College football ratings were at an all-time high this year. Bullshit you're not going to watch. Just stop projecting your own shit on the kids. Let them make their own decisions. Let them make their, their own mistakes. I used to say this about fraternities all the time. We resent other people because of arbitrary things. One frat would hate another frat because they had different squigglies on their shirt. But they played the same music. They drank the same beer. They mixed with the same sororities. Everything was exactly the same. 
The only difference was just Squiggly's a little bit different on this shirt. And college football is the exact same way. You hate another school because their colors are different and their mascot's different. It's sports, man. It's sports. If, an, if a 19-year-old kid wants to go and transfer, that's his decision. If we're old enough and responsible enough as adults to sign up for, for debt for the rest of our lives, for student loan debt, then these kids in college are old enough to make their own decision about where they want to go play football or basketball or any sport. So again, ask yourself the question, if you care, why? Because there's no real logical answer that has anything to do with other than self-serving or bias. We'll take a break. Be right back. Get into week 16 of the NFL. Big picture as we're down to two weeks left in the regular season. Week 16 of the NFL season is wrapped. It's done. Uh, and we are in a really interesting spot here in the NFL. Um, we're starting to see some separation here from some of the top teams versus some of the teams below. Um, a, just a ton of football over the last few days, right? Going Thursday night, uh, we had Arizona and Indianapolis. Do I have that right? No. What do we have? No, I have 49ers and Titans. Same colors, but just slightly uh, slightly different teams. Uh, that was Thursday night, Saturday. We had Browns, Packers, and Colts, Cardinals on Christmas Day. And then Sunday, uh, I, I would say it was one of the more interesting Sundays. Uh, a bunch of really close competitive games. Even the bad teams that were playing played some really interesting games. Um, and a couple of huge upsets. Uh, obviously the Chargers losing to the Texans. I mean, the Texans putting up 41 points on the Chargers. Now, I know the Chargers were decimated with injuries. Uh, that was huge. We saw the Bears and Seahawks. I mean, that game, Nick Foles, I, I don't know what it is about that guy when, when, when you need a big win and he just figures out a way to get it done. I mean, that touchdown catch by Demir Bird in the back of the end zone was ridiculous. I mean, his body bent in half to get his feet in bounds. Um, the Chiefs have looked like an absolute juggernaut. The Cowboys hanging almost 60 on the Washington football team. And then wrapping up Monday night with the Dolphins, um, you know, really kicking the crap out of the Saints. I mean, the Dolphins from one in seven to eight and seven, what a turnaround from the Miami Dolphins. But I, I, I will go through some of the games and I will bring up some, some storylines here. But I want to take a moment just to kind of look at where we're at in the playoffs. Right. Kansas City has all but locked up that one seed. Now, Tennessee, with the huge win over San Francisco on uh, on Thursday night, that keeps them pretty locked into that two seed. Um, the Bengals, I mean, Joe Burrow, what a performance. Fourth highest passing yards in an NFL game ever. Was it 426 yards, something like that. Uh, absolutely. Or 526 yards. Unbelievable day. I saw an amazing stat. They're the first team in NFL history to have a quarterback throw for over 4,000 yards, a running back go for over 1,000 yards on the ground, and two wide receivers go for 1,000 yards in a season, all 25 years old or younger. This is the Bengals. I mean, reminiscent of the, uh, the, the Carson Palmer Bengals, right? You had Carson Palmer, you had – Rudy Johnson running the ball back there. And then obviously Ocho Cinco and TJ Hushmanzada 
And the game that probably was the most important uh, of them all was Buffalo and New England. Uh, Buffalo winning that game in New England was massive for the Bills. Now, since that weird Monday night game, Buffalo has kind of had this like, and honestly, you could probably even make the argument the week after when they were playing Tampa Bay and that second half comeback where they pushed it in from like second half on um, against Tampa Bay to where they are now. It feels like the Bills are kind of just in fuck it mode, you know, where Buffalo was just saying, screw it, man. Like, like Josh Allen, whatever you got to do, man, just go, just go and get it. Uh, and the Bills have a pretty easy remaining schedule. So they handle their business. The Bills will uh, win the AFC East. The Patriots now have dropped three in a row. The Colts, who were one of the hottest teams in football, uh, they go on to beat Arizona on Saturday night. Um, and, and now they're sitting in the five seed at nine and six, a game behind Tennessee. Uh, but they lose the tiebreaker to Tennessee. So Tennessee's basically just got to win one more game and they lock up the uh, AFC South. The Colts, there's the number one team in the wild card position, followed by the Pats. And now, don't look, don't look now. The Miami Dolphins, the seventh seed in the playoffs. There's still a chance that if Miami wins out and the Patriots win out, Miami will actually be ahead of New England, which is wild to see. And now the Ravens, the Chargers, the Raiders, and the Steelers, even the Browns, all outside looking in. I mean, that loss on against Green Bay on Saturday for, for the Browns was devastating. 7-7 seven, seven team, they would have been 8-7. and seven. Um, They'd be ahead of Baltimore, so at, at worst, they'd be the 8th seed. Uh, the Chargers, the team that a lot of people thought, hey, this could be the most dangerous team, you know, in, in the playoffs uh, that isn't, you know, a, a top-level team. They might not even make the playoffs now. They're just a game above 500. The Raiders, uh, despite winning – you know, eight and seven for them, uh, they're not completely out of it yet. I mean, even the Broncos are still technically alive here as we're coming down the home stretch. But the AFC has completely shifted. And honestly, both conferences have. And we'll get to the NFC in a second. But looking at this, the way things are stacked up now with Kansas City at the one spot, Tennessee, Cincy, Buffalo, Indy, New England, Miami. It's really one team. And I know Tennessee is still gritting out some of these games, but without Derrick Henry, they're just not, they're not the team that I think people, they're not the team that their record says that they are, which I know that goes against the cliches in college in, in, in the NFL, right? Like you are who your record says you are. Tennessee is a very gritty, hard fought team. I respect them in the way that they've hung around. Uh, San Francisco is a team that nobody wants to play in the playoffs. Again, another cliche. And they end up winning that game on a last-second field goal thanks to Randy Bullock. But do any of these teams, do you really think, have a chance to go to Arrowhead and beat Kansas City the way that they're playing? I mean, their defense is spectacular right now. Mahomes, uh, without Travis Kelsey in this game, having just an absolutely monster day on Sunday, Kansas City has become the team that I think we all hoped that they wouldn't end up being again. Now, I love watching Patrick Mahomes, and I have to, you know, we, we've done this segment a few times on the pod, but like, hey, where was I just completely wrong? Just uh, two or three weeks ago, I said, I don't think Kansas City can win the way they're constructed this year without Mahomes being Mahomes. Well, Mahomes has started to look a little bit more like it. The deep shots aren't there. 
But when teams are playing cover two against you the whole time, you have to be okay with taking the underneath throws. And that's what they did. They're running these long drag routes with McCole Hardman and, and Tyreek Hill and uh, the other small fast wide receiver they have there, who uh, um, Byron Pringle. You know, they're, they're running these, these long drag routes across the field. They're running short stuff. Their running game has been great, especially around the goal line. Um, and then you factor in the Travis Kelsey part of this too, where it's like, hey, if Travis Kelsey comes, you know, coming back, like they did that to the Steelers, who aren't an amazing defense, but they're also not a bad defense. Uh, Kansas City is in the driver's seat here. Now, Tennessee, you know, if Derrick Henry comes back and is healthy, you know, I think they can beat anybody. But a fracture, the fracture he had in his foot is, is like a seven or eight month injury to fully recover from. So even at best, you're getting like 80 to 85% of Derrick Henry. I don't think the Titans are a real threat. That leaves us with Cincy, Buffalo, Indy, and New England. Those are the four teams I can see giving a close game to. But for Joe Burrow in his first playoff game to go into to Arrowhead, and remember too, like we've seen the Bengals lose to the Jets. We've seen the Bengals get stomped out by the Browns. So as much as I like Cincinnati, as much as everyone is singing Joe Burrow's praise, deservedly so after how good he looked this weekend and the numbers he's put up all season, this is not a team without faults. Now, it seems like they're gelling at the right time. It seems like they're on the right track. But are they going to be able to slow down Kansas City? Are they going to be able to move the ball against Kansas City? Probably not at the same extent that they've been able to before. Buffalo, I think, is the team with probably the best chance to do it. Now, Buffalo's defense has been great. The running, the running game has been awesome with Josh Allen, right? Like, with Josh Allen running the ball, leading the way, it opens up so much for them. And he's really struck this wonderful balance of like, hey, I'm going to take this game over and I'm going to do the things I need to do. And, and, and the perfect example of it was, was the culmination of that final drive. Right. First and 10, checking it down, getting to second and six. Right. We saw that a bunch on that last drive that ends up icing the game, the touchdown um, when they were driving down the fourth quarter. But he also made a couple of huge plays, the fourth and one. Right. Where he rolls out to his left, make he literally took on three different guys, broke a couple angles. And then all of a sudden he picks up five yards and there's really nothing New England could have done about it. Um, and, and then you still have one of the best wide receivers in football and Stefan Diggs there running across the back. So there's a ton, there's a ton to love about this Buffalo team. But again, it's this consistency side. Uh, the, ironically, the team that's been the most consistent would be New England and Indianapolis. Now the Colts have a great formula, right? You run the ball with Justin, uh, with James, James, uh, with Jonathan Taylor. Uh, and, and you play good defense, but Darius Leonard's banged up again. I, they played that game against Arizona on Saturday, missing four out of their five offensive linemen at one point. They were missing three going into the game, and then Eric Fisher goes out with an injury there, I think, at some point in the second quarter. So you're missing pieces there, but they hope to get Quentin Nelson back, who's one of the best offensive linemen in football, so having him back would be huge. And you kind of need that when you're going up against, you know, Chris Jones in Kansas city, new England defensively, we know how good they are. Um, and, and we know that they can run the ball. And both of these teams are, are fairly similar, right? Because the biggest question mark for Indianapolis and, and new England is going to be quarterback play, right? Can 
Mac Jones be steady enough, not turn the ball over and make a couple of plays that you need to beat a Kansas City in the playoffs? Can Indianapolis and, and do the same thing with Carson Wentz? Because, look, Carson Wentz made some awesome throws in that game on Saturday. He also got bailed out of a huge fumble that would have completely changed the game because of a bad holding call by, uh, the, by the officials, who, by the way, the officiating in the last couple of weeks has been atrocious in the NFL. Like, really, really bad. Like, where they should be hitting their stride as officials, they've gotten significantly worse. Uh, but that's a topic for another day. So the Colts, you know, Carson Wentz is going to make some mistakes. Will they be able to overcome that? Do they have to limit him to 15 pass attempts a game? And will they be able to run the ball enough and be healthy enough on the offensive line and on defense to beat a Kansas City? It's not out of the realm of possibility by any means. But I don't like the chances of anybody in the AFC other than Kansas City. And I have to eat the crow. I'm the one that said that I didn't think that Kansas City without Mahomes being Mahomes was going to be as good as they've been the last few weeks. The defense is, has been the calling card, right? The defense bef- up until two weeks ago was the thing that you said, the defense is carrying them there and the offense is playing with house money and they've been able to make uh, uh, do a lot with it. But since the Raiders game, the Chiefs offense has looked really, really good. Mahomes is not doing the flashy thing. He's just taking what the defense is giving him. Now, they could still theoretically not end up with the one seed, right? Kansas City um, and, and Mahomes and those guys, like, they're 11-4. and four. They're a game up with two games left to play. They have to go to Cincinnati next week, and then they have to go to Denver to close out the regular season. Both of those games are, are games that they could theoretically lose. I don't think they will, but – with the way Cincinnati's been playing, and this could be a, a playoff preview, we could see this game in, in, in a month from now in the playoffs. Like Cincinnati at home, sure, they could pull off the upset. Denver, right? If, if Kansas City's, you know, still fighting for it, I mean, they, they want that one seed. So I would think that Kansas City, unless Tennessee were to lose next week, Kansas City's probably going to have to start Mahomes and all their starting guys there against Denver which is another game that they could theoretically drop. And now sitting at 11 and four and they've rattled off. Let's see how many wins in a row here. Seven wins in a row. I believe the number is two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight straight wins. Jesus Christ. What an unbelievable run here for Kansas city. Um, and, and they're scoring a lot, you know, since the Broncos game and the Cowboys game, right? They put up 41 against the Raiders, then 19 against the Cowboys, 22 against the Broncos. It's 48 against the Raiders, 34 against the Chargers, 36 against the Steelers. Something has clicked with this offense. And naturally, the defenses that they play moving forward are going to have to adjust, right? You're, you're no longer going to be able to play just two high, you know, two high safety, cover two, and, and, and leave everything open underneath because it seems like Andy Reid and Mahomes have finally figured out all right, yeah, maybe we just need to take what's there. But then there's been a couple of plays in those games and defenses have adjusted, like the, the wheel route that Mahomes threw to Gore was just a phenomenal throw and catch. And that was the first time I've seen Mahomes look like Mahomes, um, honestly, all season, like probably since the Philly game when he was just lighting those guys up because the deep ball for Kansas City hasn't been there all year. 
but they're still finding ways to win games because the defense has been incredible. So it's allowed the offense to kind of figure themselves out because they've been playing ahead pretty much in the last, what, month. They've been able to just kind of play ahead. Uh, and, and this game against Cincinnati next week is going to be huge. So big picture, looking at as we're getting close to the playoffs, I think Kansas City is the clear-cut number one team, and I and I don't think there's a real legitimate contender underneath them. Again, anything's possible. Buffalo with Josh Allen, wild card, can absolutely go into Arrowhead and win a playoff game. I believe that. Uh, we saw them get that far last year and come up just a bit short. If Tennessee were to get Derrick Henry back, and Derrick Henry's the version of him we saw early in the year, absolutely. Joe Burrow is he he's got that never want to doubt that guy mentality, right? Like as a fan, like you're just like, I don't ever want to bet against Joe Burrow, but the team around him still isn't great. And I'm fascinated to see this weekend. How does their offensive line handle Kansas City? How do they handle Frank Clark? How do they handle Chris Jones? And how does Mahomes handle Tyron Matthew? Because we've seen Cincinnati's got a lot of guys that that can hurt you. Cincinnati's got a lot of wide receivers. They got a lot of weapons. I think you can run the ball pretty well against Kansas City, and that might be a good start. But the line of scrimmage in that game is going to tell me a lot about where the Bengals stand in comparison to the Chiefs right now. And then with the Colts and the Pats, I mean, they'd need some luck. They'd need some defensive help, and, and, and both of their quarterbacks would have to play great. But the point I'm saying here is that the odds are starting to get further and further away from the field and closer to Kansas City. Uh, and the NFC, what a topsy-turvy world the NFC has turned into, right? Just two weeks ago, we're talking about the Cardinals as the one seed. Uh, we're talking about Green Bay as the two seed. Talking about Tampa Bay as the three seed. And the Cowboys as the four seed. And now we got Green Bay, 12-3, and three, best record in football. Behind them, the Cowboys at 11 and four at the second seed, uh, both of which have clinched their divisions. Then we get the Rams, who have now leapfrogged Arizona and are a game ahead of the Cardinals uh, at 11 and four, Tampa Bay at 11 and four. And the Cardinals are there at 10 and five, losing three in a row, including that awful, awful loss against uh, the Detroit Lions, followed by the San Francisco 49ers and. Last seed in the NFC playoffs, the Philadelphia Eagles on an absolute tear, by the way, uh, playing really, really great football. They looked like dog shit in the first half, 3-3 at halftime. And Sirianni, who was not with the team all week, it wasn't until Saturday he cleared COVID protocols. They stopped sleepwalking and they just beat the absolute crap out of uh, the Giants. And that was a win that Philly really needed. Philly needed a win like that to just cement to themselves, like mentally, like we are, when we play a bad team, this is what we do. We beat the crap out of them. They did it to the Broncos. They obviously did it to the Lions, but to do it to the Giants who just beat you a couple weeks ago, all of a sudden not lost. The last loss they had, that ugly game against New York, flies out of your brain and you go, that was an anomaly. We're here to freaking play. And they get Washington coming up this week. They win that game. It's going to be hard to imagine they end up not making the playoffs. Um, but they get them. And then I think Dallas is probably going to rest their starters on the final week of the season. So this Eagles team, which at one point in the year looked atrocious, 
could finish the season at 10 and seven. And the 49ers have a much harder remaining schedule than the Philadelphia Eagles, right? The Eagles have Washington and then they have Dallas and Dallas is likely going to rest their starters. So you go, you beat Washington, you take over Landover, you get to nine and seven, and then you get to play Dallas at home January 9th against backups. And you finish the year 10 and seven, you're in the playoffs. San Francisco, they get lucky with having to play the Texans this week. Um, And things could break their way similarly if the Rams don't have the NFC West locked up. They go to L.A. to close out the season. Now, similarly to the Eagles, the Rams should, I say should, have that division locked up by then. But there's no guarantee. Uh, The Eagles are in a spot where Dallas has already clinched the NFC East, so the Eagles are set up a little bit better. After that, it's Minnesota at 7-8. and the Falcons at seven and eight and the saints at seven and eight, the saints losing last night was huge in where this whole kind of thing shakes out. Um, but what's wild about the NFC right now is it does feel like green Bay is the runaway best team, but this was but Sunday night was the, the Dallas game that made me go like, Oh yeah. Like this is the game where now everyone's going to talk about it. First takes going to talk about it, get up and Fox and all the sports networks. They're going to come out and they're going to start hyping up the Dallas Cowboys. Cowboys looked awesome. And we've known that offense is there. But they also kind of came out freewheeling, right? They had no pressure. There was zero pressure in that game. They knew before kickoff that they had won the NFC East already. So they said, hey, boys, let's go out and let's just sling it. Let's just have some fun. Let's just go play it, right? I don't think the Cowboys are the best team in the NFC. With the injuries to Tampa Bay, which is definitely a concern, you got to think, okay, well, Tampa Bay is susceptible. The Rams, they won by a touchdown against Minnesota. But honestly, unless unless Matthew Stafford's playing against the, uh, an NFC North team, I, I forget what the stat was, but he's like 31 touchdowns to six interceptions against every team he's played this year that's not in the NFC North. And then I think it's like four touchdowns and eight interceptions against the NFC North teams that he has played this year. The Rams, I think, are really good. Uh, Daryl, I mean, Sony Michelle and Daryl Henderson, they, they've been able to run the ball well. The defense is stout. Um, and, and I think they're just going to be an incredibly tough team to beat because I think they can beat you in a lot of different ways. And for as much as a lot of us kind of clown the Odell Beckham Jr. situation, he's been making plays for them. He's got three, three games in a row he scored a touchdown uh, on deep balls and in the red zone. Um, he, he's becoming a very useful piece. And I think that was going to be the biggest question mark here was like, hey, you lost Robert Woods, but can OBJ do enough for you to supplement some of that yardage, some of that production? And, and they've gotten to that point. Um, Tampa Bay, you know, they route Carolina this weekend, but they lose Chris Godwin for the year from the ACL tear. Uh, Mike Evans is hurt with a hamstring. Lena Fournette is hurt with a, with a hamstring. But that team was really creative in how they created that roster and that they were like, okay, like Leonard Fournette was never supposed to be the the three down back there. Remember last year, it was like 50-50 with Ronald Jones and Leonard Fournette until the playoffs came around. And then all of a sudden, playoff Lenny became a thing. And then Super Bowl, Leonard Fournette's huge uh, and and kind of cemented himself as like, hey, he's probably the number one. But between Ronald Ronald Jones, Giovanni Bernard, and uh, Keyshawn Vaughn, 
this is why depth at running back is more important than having a bell cow than having a, a Todd Gurley or Ezekiel Elliott or Christian McCaffrey, right? Those guys are awesome, but just look at, you know, Tennessee, like Deontay Foreman's been pretty good in the absence of Derrick Henry, but when your entire team is built around a running back and that running back gets hurt, the fabric of the team changes completely. Tampa Bay doesn't have to do that as much because they have guys behind Leonard Fournette because they use other guys throughout the season that they feel confident they'll still be able to run the ball well. Now, having Antonio Brown come, coming back is helpful, um, just in terms of game plan-wise and the threat. Gronk is kind of finally healthy. He missed a bunch of time this year, but he's looked pretty good. Cameron Brate is still a good option that Brady trusts at tight end. And then, yeah, you're going to have to rely on Tyler Johnson and Scotty Miller and some of these other guys. And by the time the playoffs come around, I think Mike Evans will be back, right? He gets a couple weeks, get the hamstring ready to go. And, and by the time you're out and running, whether it's Leonard Fournette coming back, uh, Mike Evans coming back, there's still going to be a lot of pieces. And the, the scarier thing, I think, for Tampa Bay, if you're a team that's going to have to play them in the playoffs, is that Tampa Bay can beat you defensively. You can't run the ball on Tampa Bay unless you have a running quarterback like a designed running quarterback, like a Jalen Hurts or a Lamar Jackson, they're a really hard team to run on. You kind of have to do some of the option shit where you, your guys up front are not going to be able to mash up against Vita Vea and Adama Kinsu and Jason Pierre-Paul and, and, all, and, and all these guys that they have on that defensive line, including uh, those two linebackers as well, and Devin White and Levante David, who are so good at stopping the run and covering guys. You know, the Eagles might be a bad matchup for them, but like San Francisco versus Tampa Bay, if that ends up being a first-round matchup, that would be really entertaining because I, I San Francisco just wants to pound you up the middle, and Tampa Bay is not going to let you pound you up the middle. So that contrast in styles would be fascinating to watch. Um, if they go up against Arizona, I don't know how Arizona, you know, Arizona, Kyler Murray, he's not looked great, right? I mean – there's been a lot of hate for Cliff Kingsbury, but what's Cliff Kingsbury supposed to do, right? Like, why is there not more questioning around Kyler as the quarterback? Because people just keep writing off, oh, well, he's hurt. He's hurt. You know, it's Kyler Murray. He's, he, it's, it's, look, Kyler Murray is an awesome player. But I've been saying this for a while now. It's okay to question him. It's okay to question how legitimate he can be with the injuries that he's sustained. It's two years in a row now that it's been the exact same storyline. The one difference with him and Lamar in terms of having these pure running quarterbacks is that Lamar and Jalen Hurts for that matter too. Jalen Hurts is stocky. Like Jalen Hurts could, could squat like 600 pounds in college, right? Lamar Jackson's like 6'3". Lamar Jackson's big. He can see things, see above the offensive line. He can feel rushers in a way that Kyler can't. Kyler's not built that way. He's not built like the brick shithouse that, you know, that Jalen Hurts is. And he's not tall like Lamar where he can kind of see and sense things differently. So when he takes a hit, even if he doesn't hit all the time, it leaves a lasting impact. And last year it was the shoulder. This year it's the ankle. Now, I'm not going to fault him. Like, your best offensive weapon in DeAndre Hopkins is out for the remainder of the regular season. You hope that he's going to be back for the playoffs. But there's not an unrealistic chance that the Eagles and Niners end up with the same record as Arizona. 
Arizona could drop these last two games. Arizona doesn't have some piece of cake remaining schedule here. All right, Arizona has to go to Dallas this week. And then they go home against the Seahawks. But in what could be the final game of Russell Wilson's career as a Seattle Seahawk. So is Russell Wilson going to just throw in the towel? No way. Not Mr. Unlimited. He would never do that. So when we're looking at the big picture, it's clear that there's two teams in the top of both conferences here that I think have clearly cemented themselves as the best team. But Dallas, don't sleep on the Dallas Cowboys. That offense is great. The defense is great. I still don't love the fact that Mike McCarthy is their head coach. And I think when they have to play, whether it's the Rams, Tampa Bay, hell, even if they go up against Philly, I think there's going to be some problems there, let alone and they have to go if they have to go to Lambeau in the NFC Championship game. Now, I, I've defended more Cowboys this year than I've ever defended in my life. I think Dak Prescott is one of the top 10 quarterbacks in football. I think there's a legitimate argument to put him in the top five, especially if you're, if you're projecting, if you're saying for the next 10 years, who do you want to be your starting quarterback? I think Dak Prescott should be near the top of that list. They have so many weapons. They have two headed monster at running back. They have a great offensive line. That offense is capable of doing what we saw against Washington on Sunday night, but they're also capable of doing what we saw against Denver. An absolute just no-show appearance in that game. The Rams, same thing. The only team that I feel really strongly can challenge Green Bay, or that I think I, I know for sure will challenge Green Bay, if they get there, is Tampa Bay because of Tom Brady. But I got to tell you, the Packers are really good. They win close games. They're hard to beat. Now, they're going to have to play Minnesota again, which hurts, right? We, we know what happened the last time they played. And Minnesota, for whatever reason, seems to have the Packers' number. They get the Vikings this week, but then they close out against the Lions, which honestly, if they lose against Minnesota – they're starting Aaron Rodgers against the Lions until they put up 30. And then they can, you know, put in Jordan Love and, you know, coast on to the number one seat. But they just got to win one of two. And then they, they're winning the division, you know, they're winning the conference. It's going to be a really interesting last couple of weeks. Because I think depending on where these matchups line up, we could have a super, super entertaining playoffs. The NFC probably a little bit more than the AFC. Because I could see Dallas, the Rams, Tampa Bay, even Arizona beating Green Bay a lot easier than I could see Tennessee, Cincinnati, Buffalo, Indy, New England, uh, you know, beating Kansas City. Based off of how Kansas City's been playing. But I, I will stand pat on my, on my stance there that this isn't like the Chiefs are unbeatable. Mahomes still hasn't been <clears throat> the electric MVP Mahomes that we've seen over the last few years. Still over 4,000 yards, still putting up ridiculous numbers. But they are a clear cut above everyone else. I think Green Bay is like a half cut above everybody else there in the NFC. So uh, 
be something to uh, to keep an eye on here. Um, other storylines here, not necessarily pertaining to the playoffs and this season. Um, the Browns. I understand Browns fans are upset. Uh, they got screwed over by some holding calls. They were in that game at the end. The Browns need to take a step back and, and look at the holistic picture of what this year was, right? Similarly to the Buffalo Bills, we talked about this just a couple weeks ago. The Browns are in a situation right now that happens to a team every single year where you get so unfortunate, such unfortunate luck with the way your schedule plays out at certain times, plus COVID, plus, you know, the amount of just injuries across the board they have. I mean, we've seen Jeremiah Wusu-Koromoa, who if Micah Parsons wasn't having the year he was having, he'd be your defensive rookie of the year. I mean, he that kid can fly around the field. The defense is going to be good for a long time. The running game with Nick Chubb, I mean, Nick Chubb is an absolute unit. That dude is, a, is, is phenomenal. And I understand, look, Baker had the four interceptions against Green Bay. You can't throw four picks. Two of them weren't his fault. But the guy's playing with one arm. You know, he's torn his labrum and his non-throwing shoulder twice. And, and just in terms of rotation and, and what you have to do with your non-throwing arm to finish throws – He's not finishing them. He's finishing them on his back foot. He's not sitting in the pocket delivering the football because physically he can't. So I get why Browns fans are upset and frustrated and you had expectations this year and they have not come true. But take away the expectations for a minute, right? Eliminate last year. Consider the last 20 years. And now look at what the Browns are right now. It's hard to be upset. Legitimately. They could still finish 9-8 and eight with a winning record. That is still very much in play for the Browns. Will it get you in the playoffs? Probably not. But a 9-8 and eight record above 500, considering what this franchise has been for the last 25 years, is a massive win. It's a massive win. You have to keep that perspective here. I, I get it, right? Like, as a fan, you want to criticize. You have the right to, to criticize players. I saw a Browns fan saying that on, on Twitter the other day. It's like, you know, we, we still have the right to criticize our players. I'm like, I do, but you also have the right to be rational. You also have the right to look at the bigger picture. If you want to criticize Baker because he didn't play good, fine, but also add the context. And recognize that you were playing a really, really good defense. And that two of the interceptions weren't necessarily his fault. He made some bad decisions. He had two really bad interceptions. But he also got screwed with, with penalties at the end of it. And so if you're going to hold the totality of the disappointment on the shoulders of Baker Mayfield, you're doing your team and your franchise a disservice. If your team was that bad for that long, Recognize that it's going to take a few years to completely shell that off. Now, if you can get Baker on, you know, a $70 million contract for, for six years, for five years, four years, $70 million, right? Where you're still paying him there, but you're not, you're not breaking the quarterback record every year, right? Like, I mean, no one's going to break the Mahomes record, but you know what I mean? Where you're one-upping the market value of, of a quarterback that's going on to free agency. It's worth it. 
It's 100% worth it. And I think Baker's the kind of guy, Lord knows he's getting that progressive money. But I think Baker's the kind of guy who, hey, you know what? If, if, if you're going to pay him $70 million over four years, it's not going to destroy your salary cap. You can still pay the guys you need to pay. You can still give my, you know, Miles Garrett's contract. You can still pay and, and add pieces around him. You got to do it, man. You absolutely got to do it. This guy led you to a playoff win in Pittsburgh against the Steelers. This year cannot be held against him in the same way it would if Baker was healthy and doing the same things. And that, that same logic, by the way, applies to the entire, the entire roster. Um, and I think a, a very similar mindset can be taken to the Baltimore Ravens. I've never seen a, a team depleted with – I don't want to say I've never seen it, but the Ravens win the award for most, most injuries and most banged-up team this year. Uh, the Ravens have just gotten demolished with injuries. Uh, going all the way back to, you know, preseason when Gus Edwards and J.K. Dobbins and their starting three running backs all going down with, uh, I think, Justice Hill, too, all going down with season-ending knee injuries. And then your defense gets hurt on the – Marcus Peters goes down, and then Marlon Humphrey gets hurt here halfway, you know, halfway through the season. You know, I don't know what you can ask more of the Bengals. Uh, in this game in particular, you know, you think, oh, Ty Tyler Huntley, right? Tyler Huntley's going to come in and is playing well as a backup. Well, he tests positive for COVID. Now you're on to Josh Johnson, who's played for, I think, the most teams in NFL history. Uh, I don't know what more you can ask. And, and again, I think you have to chalk it up to, to shitty luck. And this is one of those, this is just one of those years. Um, I don't think you look at this and go, man, Lamar Jackson, see, it's not working. Told you it wasn't working. Told you couldn't be a quarterback. No, Lamar Jackson's great. Lamar Jackson has, has single-handedly won you four games minimum in this season. I think the scarier part, if you're Baltimore, if you're Cleveland, is looking across the division and seeing that Cincinnati looks like they're actually starting to have something here. You have a quarterback in Joe Burrow who throws for 525 yards and four touchdown passes. That's the scarier thing. But Lamar, the Ravens, John Harbaugh, it's a crap year. It sucks. And I, and I empathize with those fans. I really do. But I, I, I think you have to hold Pat and realize, hey, you know what? This is a lost year. You're going to have to pay Lamar. Dude's an MVP. The dude's an absolute game changer. And I know there's going to be naysayers. So, yeah, we still haven't seen it in the playoffs. Screw it. Who cares? Doesn't matter, man. That guy changes everything that a defense has to do. It's like the NFL equivalent of when a college team has to play Army or Navy and you're going up against a triple option. You spend your entire week learning an entirely different defense than what you normally run to prepare for just that, just the fact that you're playing Lamar Jackson. It can't be understated how much of a, of, of a beneficiary all the players around him are because of that. There's no understating it. Mark Andrews is an awesome tight end. He probably would be a, a good tight end on a lot of teams. But Mark Andrews isn't like the number three or one of the top three tight ends in football unless he's playing with Lamar Jackson. Now, maybe that's unfair. It's, an, it's a hypothetical, right? So we don't know for sure. But he could just as easily be Dallas Goddard or TJ Hawkinson or, or Tyler Higby on another team in another offense that's not going to feature him the way that they do. But that offense allows 
Mark Andrews to, to succeed because of how dangerous Lamar Jackson is. And because that's the exact kind of throw that Lamar Jackson wants, those medium throws, those over-the-middle crosses when he's scrambling. And obviously the two of them have a great connection, but you've built your whole roster around this guy. And you found a backup in Tyler Huntley who can come in in a similar offense and, and do a lot of the same things. The ankle injury sucks. And it sucks that this is a lost year for the Ravens who, um, you know, going into the year, I thought they'd be a below five. I thought, I thought they'd be around 500, probably like a seven or eight win team. And that's about where they're at now. Maybe a little bit better. A uh, couple of teams here that I, I, I want to talk to as well before um, we take a quick break here and, and move on to some NBA stuff. Uh, Minnesota and Seattle, right? Before the season started, I said – there were three coaches I thought were likely to lose their jobs um, if they didn't have a good season. Uh, Seattle with Pete Carroll, uh, Mike Zimmer in Minnesota, and the third one was John Harbaugh in Baltimore. I think John Harbaugh, John Harbaugh is safe. They've invested too much in the way that that roster is constructed um, and, and how influential he's been in that whole process to move on from him. I don't think there's any risk of John Harbaugh losing his job especially considering the amount of injuries and everything. Minnesota, on the other hand, and, and I'll say the same thing for Seattle. Now, Seattle, you lose Russell Wilson, that's tough. Um, but the difference between Russell Wilson being in some of these games and Geno Smith and the fact that the offense didn't change much, they were roughly the same team, speaks a lot about how that roster is constructed. Uh, financially, they're in um, serious problems. The Jamal Adams trade – has turned into a complete disaster for Seattle. Not having a, a first or second round pick last year killed them because there's just no young talent coming in there at all. Uh, and, and even though they have two awesome wide receivers in Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, for whatever reason, that offense still isn't the same. And I think it's just it's just stagnated. You got a 70-year-old head coach who's not Bill Belichick. And I like Pete Carroll. I, I genuinely do. But I think it's time. I think it's time for Seattle. You know, whether you phrase it as a mutual parting of ways or Pete Carroll's not going to return this year, however you need to do it, because I get that he's a huge figure. You know, you have Russell Wilson. You got to keep him at all costs. And if that means firing Pete Carroll and letting, you know, Russell Wilson basically handpick who he wants his next head coach to be, then you have to do it. I said this a couple of weeks ago and I stand by it. It is much harder to replace Pete Car or to replace Russell Wilson than it is to replace Pete Carroll significantly harder. And for Minnesota, I think both Zimmer and Kirk Cousins are replaceable, but you have all this guaranteed money locked up in Kirk Cousins and Kirk Cousins hasn't been bad this year. I mean, it's just, that's who he is, right? He's, he's gonna, he's not this super aggressive guy until his back's against the wall. He plays conservative football. He throws short of the sticks. But there's so much talent in Minnesota on that offense. And they've scored a bunch of points. But I, I, I look back on what this Minnesota, what Mike Zimmer's built on. It's defense, right? When, when they made it to the NFC Championship game with Case Keenum, that team was built on defense. You know, then they would run the ball, and and I think Dalvin Cook might have been a rookie that year. I don't even know if he might not have even been in the NFL yet at that point. I don't, I'm not sure. But, like, Kyle Rudolph and Stephon Diggs were your threats on offense, and you had Case Keenum. 
but you ran the ball, you worked some play action off of it. It was the Kevin Stefanski offense. He was the offensive coordinator in Minnesota at the time, but they won because of their defense. But if we go back to that year, how did Minnesota even end up in the NFC Championship game? It was the, the Minnesota Miracle, right? Or Minneapolis Miracle, whatever they called it. But the Stephon Diggs walk-off touchdown, right? They were an absolute blown coverage away from losing and not even making it to the NFC Championship game. So let's say that, you know, that, that one play doesn't happen. Mike Zimmer's probably not even invited back last year or for this year. I get that he adds stability. He's a vet. He's been around for a long time. But he's been somewhat of a distraction off the field, right? There's all these all the fucking obsession with his, like, 25-year-old girlfriend. Like, But, like, I don't really give a shit about that. But other people do. It's something that people talk about. So it's something that you're – it's taking away from the amount of time you're talking about football. And the defense hasn't been good in, in now three seasons. And you have a defensive head coach. Now the offense isn't be is not producing the way that it should, given the amount of talent that's there. And seeing as hey, you trade Stephon Diggs and you you get honestly lucky and land on Justin Jefferson. Like you can't afford to lose another guy. Adam Thielen's probably got one or two more years left of his of his top tier prime. Minnesota has a window based off of the way their offense is constructed, but the defense has let them down time and time again. And in games where the defense hasn't been good, the offense hasn't been good. And in games where the offense has been really good, the defense hasn't been really good. And so many of their wins, Minnesota has had to climb back. There's only two games this year. Two. The number grew from one to two uh, a couple weeks ago. But there's only been two games this year that hasn't been a one-score game for Minnesota. And that difference comes down to coaching, comes down to clock management. And a lot of it comes down to Kirk Cousins too, right? Kirk Cousins doing small things throughout the game that, that is ultimately preventing them from, from hitting their ceiling. But you've got this guaranteed money into Kirk Cousins. There's a lot of good offensive coaches out there. They have some decent draft picks. They have to be aggressive in fixing this defense. And I know people loved the Patrick Peterson signing because he was like a ball boy there or something when he was a kid. He's from that area, almost like the Larry Fitzgerald thing. But they need to get find like young impact defensive players, whether it's the draft or free agency, and make a run. Uh, I think Mike Zimmer's time in Minnesota is probably done. You know, they've been close. I got the doors blown off in Philly in the NFC Championship game after the Minnesota Miracle. And since then, I haven't really seen a whole lot. Now, the other coach that there's some rumblings with here is, is Matt Rule in Carolina. He's not doing a great job, kind of putting his foot in his mouth a few times here and there. Um, five and ten is disappointing. I, I, thought the fi- I thought firing Joe Brady was a weird call by them. I don't know what they expected Joe Brady to do with Sam Darnold for six weeks and, and then a combination of P.J. Walker and, and Cam Newton and then now this weird hybrid where they're going back and forth yesterday against Tampa Bay. Uh, they took a step back this year. The defense uh, still has shown some signs of being really good, but I think the biggest issue with Carolina has been the front office. 
you know, and I get Matt Rule plays a part of that, but the off the the the, the front office has done a really bad job of of where they're committing money to, and and I get that Christian McCaffrey is a uniquely special talent when he's healthy, but his track record shows that he's not really healthy much at all, and you're playing in a division now that I mean, who knows how long Tom Brady's going to be around. But you think you should be relatively competitive going up against the Saints and the Falcons, considering where those teams are this year. And they just really haven't been. Five and ten, it's not good enough, uh, especially when they were, what, an eight and eight team a year ago. And, and that's the difference between Teddy Bridgewater and then taking a risk on Sam Darnold. But they got rid of their offensive coordinator, who was a guy who was being interviewed for head coaching jobs a year ago, and Joe Brady. Uh I don't know where it feels like maybe just a little bit lack of leadership. And I don't know how much of that is due to the front office. I don't know how much of the Joe Brady thing had to do with rule and Brady not getting along or uh, the front office and Brady or, or the front office not being impressed with Brady. I don't know. Um, but that's a name that like, you know, those surprise coaching firings, you know, you see every year. Uh, I wouldn't be overly shocked there if, uh, if Matt rule gets the gets let go. Um, there's resentment from NFL people about college head coaches uh, and making that tr transition. But I still think Matt Rule is a good coach. Um, I, I think the front office has kind of let them down a little bit. I think the defense is still young. Remember his first year, they drafted only defensive players. Well, when the offense doesn't show up, that's probably going to be why, right? And uh, there's only so much that Joe Brady could do and now you're staring at a quarterback class. You know, if, if they can go out and make a trade for Deshaun Watson, that would be interesting. Uh, you know, obviously there's some Carolina ties there with with South. I mean, Deshaun went to Clemson, which is South Carolina, and the Panthers play in North Carolina. But I think both Carolinas tend to rally around the Panthers as their team. Um, so maybe Deshaun clears his legal stuff and ends up there. But I don't think they're getting Russell Wilson. I don't think they're getting Aaron Rodgers. So you know, maybe take a shot on a Matt Corral or a Malik Willis from Liberty or someone like that to come in and, and do something. But um, if nothing else, the clock has started to tick, right? They've flipped the hourglass over and the sand's starting to kind of trickle out. Um, the Bears, Matt Nagy, probably gone. I mean, great. Again, awesome win. That game was weird with the snow and everything. Um, so, you know, we'll see. And then the one team I'm really curious about, uh, in the last thing here, the Steelers are in a really interesting spot because they're seven, seven and one. They're probably going to draft somewhere in the middle of, of the first round. Um, I don't know how much I believe. Uh, let me rephrase that. I don't know what direction Pittsburgh is going to look to go because you can go after Kenny Pickett, right, who's the hometown kid, he played at Pitt, uh, played in played his college ball at Heinz Field, um, I think would actually be a pretty good fit for them. I think would actually be um, a nice compliment for, you know, the wide receivers and stuff they have there. But if you're Pittsburgh, if you have the opportunity to go draft a, a top-tier offensive lineman in the first round and then make a push for, you know, Russell Wilson or Aaron Rodgers or – um, you know, Deshaun Watson, maybe I don't think Deshaun would go up and play there. That would be really interesting. Like, I, I think 
Aaron Rodgers going to Green Bay would be a really, really great fit. I don't know how much Matt Canada and Aaron Rodgers would get along in terms of play style. Like, I think Rodgers would want a little more input in how that offense is run. You know, the quick pass underneath stuff. You know, Rodgers likes to be able to control that. He likes to be able to have, you know, a, a Devontae Adams type player. And I don't know, I'm, as much as Deontay Johnson is, is a great player and Chase Claypool's made some awesome plays, I'm not sure if they have that right now in Pittsburgh. But the offensive line's a mess. Um, TJ Watt is playing extremely banged up, so they have to do some work there. But I would be curious to see how Rodgers would fit. Now, if I'm Aaron Rodgers, I wouldn't want to leave Green Bay. I, I just I wouldn't. I think he and LaFleur are a great combination, head coach, quarterback. You're not going to find a better, a better wide receiver out there for Rodgers than Devontae Adams. And you have a great running back system there. You got a good offensive line, and you got a defense that's really coming along. Green Bay still feels like the best spot for Aaron Rodgers. So for all of the talk and all of the stuff that we saw from Rodgers in the in the preseason, are we sure Aaron Rodgers is going to leave Green Bay at the end of the year? Are we sure this is the last dance for him in Green Bay? I mean, he's vindictive enough that it wouldn't surprise me if he's still stuck by his guns. But why would you want to leave? If you're Aaron Rodgers. And also, what would that dynamic be like with Tomlin? A notorious, you know, you know, he's a player's coach, but he hates off the field, you know, distractions as, as much as any coach short of Belichick. So how would all of this, you know, the eccentric Aaron Rodgers stuff kind of work with Mike Tomlin as, as his head coach? I think that's probably the best situation for him. I don't know who else would, would, would kind of top that. I wouldn't want to go to Carolina. You know, um, Denver's an interesting one, but honestly, Fangio, I think, is on his last legs too. I know he came out and said in his press conference after the game that he he's not worried about his job. The defense is doing their part, but again, if you're Rodgers, I mean, unless he comes in as like the offensive coordinator too, I don't know if Rodgers is going to love playing for Fangio. Um and I'll say this too, I, you have to be disappointed with the wide receiver play in, in Denver. Jerry Judy, for a, a guy who was as hyped up as he was coming out of college, has not been great. Uh, K.J. Hamler missing this year from the ACL tear is, is obviously a huge bummer. But even like Cortland Sutton, like they paid Cortland Sutton. He doesn't have great numbers this year. Great talent. Um, and, and he's coming off the ACL too, but He's, you know, he's had a couple of big games, but for the most part, it's been pretty mediocre for him. Same, you know, Tim Patrick is another one who's like, oh man, Tim Patrick's sneaky good. But there's a difference between being sneaky good and then developing players to hit their max potential. And Denver's lack of lack of uh, aggression and lack of effort in effort's not the best thing, but maybe lack of resources in investing in the wide, uh, developing the wide receivers that they have is concerning because either they're not as good or they're not being coached up to be as good as they can be, or the scheme itself is broken. And I know Teddy Bridgewater is a conservative quarterback, but they, it's not like they looked any better with more of the gunslinger and Drew Locke, who was playing more like Teddy Bridgewater anyway on Sunday. So the Broncos are another interesting team to figure out. But again, if you're Aaron Rodgers, Washington, maybe? I don't know. San Francisco would be probably the best landing spot with how much they run the ball there. 
that's probably the best setup. If you if you went to San Francisco, that would probably be the best setup for him. Um, and I think we know that the 49ers at some point want to move on from Jimmy G. Because it, even that game on Thursday night, if Aaron Rodgers is in that game, there's no way that the, the Titans come back and win it. Uh, I, there's just no way. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Um, that's kind of where we're at in the NFL right now. Two weeks left. MVP to this point, probably Aaron Rodgers. Probably. Probably. Tom Brady, eh, maybe. Who knows? Maybe, maybe Scott's prediction of Jonathan Taylor winning the MVP will come true. But um, I think right now it's, it's, it's probably Aaron Rodgers. He made some throws in that game against Cleveland, man, that you just – I love watching that dude play. Just love it. All right. That's all we got. Great pod. We'll be back uh, later in the week. Preview week 17 in the NFL. And uh, we will also preview the college football playoff. So stay tuned to that. Have a wonderful week. I'll talk to you guys then. And as always, take it easy, everybody.